You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. So in 2018, I did my very first sabbatical, which is where if you're a professor at a university, every seven years, once you have a tenure, they let you go somewhere else to learn something new. And you can study with another group for six months. So most of my career, in fact, all of my research career, I've been working in regenerative medicine and stem cell science. And a lot of what I was working on was trying to understand how we could regrow bone and muscle in defects that were really big, large defects, whether that was from trauma, like an explosive injury, for example, in war fighters, or cancer, where a large portion of muscle or bone had to be removed, or infection. And uh, so I was interested in muscle regeneration. I went and did a sabbatical at the Stebbin Philippon Research Institute with a guy named Johnny Heward, who was the guy who kind of discovered the muscle stem cell. And I wanted to understand a little bit more about that and figure out what these stem cells were all about. And uh, with the intention that I would be bringing this technology back to CSU and being able to use this in this kind of regrowing bone and muscle in large defects. During my sabbatic there, there were a lot of athletes, of course, at, and this is located in Vail, Colorado. So some of the elite athletes of the world go to the STEM and Philippon for their surgeries and different treatments. And I had the opportunity to work with master athletes who are people generally over the age of 50, usually 60 and above, who are doing these amazing athletic you know, events such as marathons or ultra marathons, et cetera. And I was able, because many of them were having surgery, I was able to have, with their permission, a small section of their muscle that could be removed at the time of their surgery, adjacent to whatever area of the body they were working on, and um, started working on the stem cells of these master athletes and trying to isolate them. And as I worked on this project, I recognized that people who were active into their later ages, and especially these ultra-athletes, had really, really Uh, functional stem cells, and they had a lot of stem cells relative to very sedentary people of the same age. And it finally kind of the light bulb went off in my head to think, wow, you know, I've been thinking about this from an acute injury standpoint, like this sudden loss of muscle or bone. But what aging could be all about is a, a very slow decline in the number of stem cells. And that's one of, we know, the drivers of aging, right, is stem cell exhaustion. Um, And that exercise, lifelong habits of exercise, was preserving the stem cells in these people, unlike similar age people that were not athletes. And what was sort of the aha moment for me was to understand that we could actually apply the techniques that I was using to regrow bone and muscle in these large defects to maybe combat this loss of stem cells and stem cell function over the lifetime. And through that, maybe combat aging. And that's when the aging light bulb became like the big, you know, bright, shiny object on the horizon. And I started to really think about aging research as the focus of the remainder of my career. On today's show, we are bringing back Center for Healthy Aging Director, Dr. Nicole Earhart. She was our first guest ever on the Living Healthy Longer podcast. And today, Nicole is here to talk to us about regenerative medicine. 
What is it? What is stem cell therapy? And this new interesting treatment that her lab and her research is working on called extracellular vesicle therapies that will address aging-related musculoskeletal issues such as sarcopenia. If you recall from a prior episode, sarcopenia is the wasting away of muscle mass as we get older. And so Nicole is here to talk to us about this very cutting edge, very novel preliminary study of extracellular vesicle therapy to address sarcopenia. It's a really fascinating conversation, so I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. Well, Nicole, thank you for coming back on the show. I'm excited to have you on a second time to talk about something completely different this time. I know. It's very exciting. Thank you for having me. A year and a half later, can you believe how far we've come? No, it feels like yesterday and it feels like a lifetime ago all at the same time. I know, I know. And so many things that we've covered on this show since you were our first episode. So I want to get more into, you know, what you've done in the regenerative medicine space in regards to, you know, connective tissues and bone and blood and all of those things. Um, So I wonder if we can start just very basic and talk about what are stem cells, what specifically the kind of stem cells you work with, that kind of topic. Sure. So um, people hear the word stem cell or the phrase stem cell, and a lot of different ideas come to their minds. Probably the most controversial is the idea of fetal stem cells, right? And this, these are cells that are taken from a human fetus or any any animal species before they're born, Um, And those cells have very special properties. They can actually turn into almost any type of tissue or embryonic stem cells or fetal stem cells can turn into almost any kind of tissue in the body. But what people often don't realize is that adults have stem cells. In fact, every single tissue in our body has stem cells in it. And there are very small numbers in our bodies as adults. Um, But what they are, are they're the repair cells of the body. So stem cells essentially are activated. They're just kind of hanging out quiescently for long, long periods of time until an injury happens or growth is needed or something like that. And suddenly they're kind of activated and they begin to divide. They actually mobilize and can home to sites of injuries. And then they secrete very special chemicals that are kind of growth factors that essentially um, gather the troops, if you will, or the signals that cause the rest of the body's healing um, response to start to coordinate with you know, each other and eventually result in healing of the tissue. So adults have stem cells, and the area of interest that I've had for a number of years is in adult stem cells. There are stem cells in our liver, there are stem cells in our heart, in our brain, in our teeth, in our bone marrow, everywhere. The set of stem cells that I was really interested in are the stem cells that are found in our connective tissues. So as you remember, the connective tissues are the things that connect things to other things like muscles and tendons, even bones um, and other tissues like fat is a a, um, connective tissue. And so the types of stem cells that are found in connective tissue are called mesenchymal stem cells, or for short, we call them MSCs. 
So MSCs are the group of cells that I had been interested in and was really what launched my kind of exploration into muscle and regenerating muscle. And that's one of the reasons why I went to the Stedman, because I knew there was a researcher who had a lot of experience. So these mesenchymal stem cells are the group of cells that I was interested in. They're found in adults. Right. And the interest too in stem cells, just more generally for regenerative medicine, is that they can kind of target and treat these degenerative diseases and conditions that affect all adults. Um, It's kind of like the future 21st century therapy for targeting different kinds of disorders. So can you talk a little about that? Yeah. And so there's kind of good news and bad news in that statement in that at the beginning of stem cell science, when people were really starting to get interested in adult stem cells, um, there was thought that these cells were kind of the magic, you know, the magic, whatever, um, fairy dust, if you will, that would really heal or repair or reverse a lot of the things that happen in our bodies, either as a result of just wear and tear, like what happens in aging, as an example, or from injury or illness. Um, But what's happened is that we've gotten a lot more um, savvy about what these cells actually can and can't do. There's still a lot of questions, actually. But it turns out that the hype about stem cells was a little bit ahead of the science. And so for the beginning of probably the last 10 or the first 10 years of people being interested in stem cells as part of regenerative medicine, it was kind of the Wild West. I mean, stem cells were being used for just about any disease you could think of, from Parkinson's disease to blindness to, you know, congenital conditions to arthritis. And their thought was that these were kind of these magic cells that could turn into any tissue. And if we give them in the site of an injury or even in the vein so they could circulate around the body, that somehow they would arrive at the site and heal the injury or repair what was wrong. While they can actually circulate and find sites of injury, in fact, that's one of their cool, the cool aspects of stem cells, they actually don't necessarily get to the site and then just turn into the tissue that is injured, which is the original thought. People thought they just turn into, you know, or actually what we call differentiate into tissues that were injured and repair that way. It turns out that that was actually a very small part of what they do. They Very few of the cells actually ever survive kind of getting to the spot where there's injury, and actually even fewer of them differentiate into the tissue that was damaged. Instead, where their primary mechanism of action is, is they secrete a whole bunch of good things that coordinate the rest of the body's healing response. And in doing so, they actually can decrease chronic inflammation and they can also help repair or restore function in areas of the body that have been, you know, diseased or injured. And my understanding about stem cell therapies is that they've gotten a really bad rep too because of, you know, like you were saying, stem cell clinics that marketed them as this future, you know, magic thing that could, you know, treat all of these different diseases. So can you talk a little about the industry of some stem cells and some of the issues with, you know, clinical efficacy and things like that? Yeah, that's a really, really interesting topic. So it's really interesting to hear you say they've gotten a bad rap because depending on who you talk to, some people still think they're, you know, the magic wand of, you know, healing everything. And other people think they're worthless. And the truth is really somewhere in between, as is normally the case, right? 
So um, one of the problems is that stem cell therapy or the definition of stem cell therapy is there is really no one thing that defines stem cell therapy. So when you hear about, hey, I'm going to go to a clinic and get stem cell therapy, that could mean any one of many different things. It might mean that what they're giving you is a, a group of cells that have been enriched for the stem cell population. And this is common when they get bone marrow aspirate or they take fat with lipoaspirates. Um, so where they're you know doing liposuction and they collect the fat and they spin it down to try to concentrate the cells. There are stem cells in there, but there are other cells in there. So what you're getting, especially from person to person, if it's coming from your own body, is really different from person to person. So one person's number of stem cells in their fat may be very different than another person. That depends on a, how much fat there is. It also depends on the person's own lifestyle habits, it, like whether they're smokers or not. We know that in smokers, you have fewer stem cells, even at younger ages. It depends on their age. It depends on a million things. So that's just one tiny example of stem cell therapy and the variation from individual to individual. Then there's a whole bunch of other things that are sort of falling under that umbrella, if you will, of stem cell therapy can be actually purified stem cells where we take the cells and we actually select the stem cells, separate everybody else out and throw those guys out and keep the stem cells, but let them multiply in a Petri dish and then give them back to the person. So that's another form of stem cell therapy. Um, and again, that can be from that person's own body, or it could be from a donor. You've probably heard of bone marrow transplants. Bone marrow transplants are actually stem cells taken from the bone marrow of a donor, a compatible donor grown up in a Petri dish and then given to a recipient. Um, and then there are other types of things that people sometimes use the word stem cell therapy for, but really aren't. Things like PRP. So PRP stands for platelet-rich plasma. The only thing that's in those um, preparations is a lot of platelets <laughs> and other cells, but not necessarily stem cells. There may be some in there, um, but there's a lot of good growth factors in those. So Again, that's one of the reasons why people are quite, at least the public and even many scientists are confused about what stem cell therapy really is. Then if you just look at, you know, who's received stem cell therapy, if, you know, um, person A goes to a stem cell clinic and gets PRP, but person B goes to another stem cell clinic and gets lipoaspirate, which is essentially a, a group of cells, and then person C gets purified stem cells, even if they were exactly the same age, exactly the same disease being treated, and exactly at the same advanced you know, stage of disease, like whatever stage they were at, they would have vastly different responses, right? Because they're actually getting very different treatments. And therein lies the confusion, the problem, and the fact that we really haven't been able to define the best dose or best practices for stem cell, quote, therapy, because it has been so variable in the public. That is also one of the reasons why there really are no FDA-approved stem cell therapies, right? There's nothing out there that is a pure stem cell therapy that's FDA-approved, because there's really not enough evidence with a single kind of stem cell therapy in a single disease to actually say that they make a difference. But it's important we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Because they actually do have a lot of very good potential. The problem is it really requires years and years of very well-controlled studies to narrow down exactly what 
is the useful dose, the useful tissue, you know, what diseases does it work best for in what individuals at what stage of disease. And that's going to take a while to untangle, especially given kind of the muddy waters that we're trying to sort this out in, if you will. Yeah, I could ask you probably a million more questions. We could just have a whole episode about stem cell therapies. Um, But I think the takeaway from what you just said for the average listener is beware of a therapy that is marketed to you probably by a private company. (laughs) So true. If you're paying cash for a therapy, I would ask a lot of questions before I would just sign myself up. And just for the listeners, you know, asking questions like, what exact stem cell preparation are you going to be giving? Why have you arrived at this dose? Um, what are other alternatives? Um, and, you know, if there are clinical trials that are happening and you decide that you want to be part of that, that's wonderful. I have no, I would encourage you to, if that's in your comfort zone, if you want to participate, but just make sure that you understand what your risks are and also whether you may or may not be getting placebo, which could be completely in an active form. So again, just do your dil, dil, sorry, do your due diligence um, to try to make sure that you are, you know, getting the appropriate therapy and you are not just throwing money down the drain, unfortunately, which I think happens pretty frequently. Yep. Very frequently. (laughs) So going back to what you were just saying about how, you know, there needs to be these preliminary studies on stem cells, these clinical trials to really, you know, get some more support behind stem cell therapies. That's what we're talking about today. This particular kind of therapy that you are researching that involves extracellular vesicles, these other, you know, molecules called exosomes. Tell us about what those are at a cell biology level. Yeah. So um, there are a lot of, um, by the way, just to fill in some of the gaps in that previous conversation, there are a lot of clinical trials actually happening with stem cells. And if you really want to contribute, I mean, that's a great way to maybe help us scientists figure out whether, how to, how to use them effectively. So, you know, if you're interested, there are ways you can get involved with that. Um, But the kind of next generation of what has been sort of the landscape of stem cells and where we've been trying to go with stem cells is actually instead of using the cells themselves, which have been really, really hard, as I mentioned, to nail down the right dose, to get consistent numbers and consistent like biologic activity from person to person among stem cells, instead of using the the cells, we're actually, because we now know that there are the actual secretions of the stem cells are part of the major way that the stem cells have their effects. We are now collecting those secretions and looking at what's in that, what's in that magic juice that's really part of why these things do work in very controlled circumstances to regenerate tissue or heal. And it turns out that the major player in all this secretion that they make is this little tiny particle, and it's called an extracellular vesicle. So a vesicle is just what it sounds like, a very, very small vessel. Um, And in this case, the little vessel is surrounded by um, a cell membrane or a double membrane. And um, these are sometimes called nanovesicles. And you might be familiar with the word nanovesicles because that's a, a, a synthesized form of that is what's in the mRNA vaccines for COVID. 
So it's a way in which you can actually deliver a certain content, or we call it cargo, in that vesicle and keep it safe from the body breaking it down too quickly such that it can't actually do what it's supposed to do. So the way stem cells work is they cruise around the body, they finally arrive at a place where there's um, an injury and they secrete these things and they're so close to the site of injury that those things don't get destroyed by just circulation and other things and they actually are signals to other cells around them um, to start doing the work of repair. Um, stem cells can also secrete these things into the bloodstream and those little tiny vesicles can actually find their way to a site of injury similar to the way the parent cell would have done and do exactly the same thing. So without having to deal with the cells themselves, which are difficult to deal with, um, the little tiny vesicles are things that we can collect and actually purify in a way that we really couldn't do with stem cells before. And yet they mimic the same kinds of good repair effects that the stem cells themselves did to begin with. So this is what we would call cell-free therapy. And it's actually getting these little um, extracellular vesicles or exosomes, we call them, um, and collecting them and, and enriching them for the right kind of cargo for a disease that we want to treat. And that's the area of research I'm in. So it's sort of I call it regenerative medicine 2.0. <laughs> Good title for it because it is very cutting edge. <laughs> so that cargo, let's talk about that cargo because you can use uh, exosome, ex extracellular vesicle therapy to target diseases of aging, conditions of aging. And I know one of the ones that you're interested in is sarcopenia, you know, this like wasting away of muscle mass and, and such. Can you tell us what you're doing in your lab on that topic? Yeah. So um, sarcopenia, as you know, is the loss of muscle mass. Um, it can be just, it is actually a natural effect of aging. As we get older, our muscle mass de decreases, starting really in about our late 30s and 40s. As we age, our muscle mass decreases over time. And we also know that by exercising, we can slow that roll quite a bit. And so that's one reason why exercise is so good for us and such a healthy aging thing to do. Um, sarcopenia can also happen as a result of starvation, as a result of advanced cancer um, and other diseases. So people that are skeletally thin at the end of life, much of that is because of sarcopenia. Um, sarcopenia can also happen if we've been injured and we're no longer being active. So think about the football player who, you know, blows out a cruciate ligament and has to be on crutches. If you measure his thigh muscles on the side of the cruciate ligament injury, you'll find that they're much smaller than the other side because he's not exercising that leg and can't while he's recovering. So one of the things that besides all of those, you know, different ways in which we can help preserve muscle, we're interested in actually thinking about this as a way to maybe prevent that slow decline during aging over time. And one way to do that is actually promote what we call an exercise mimetic, meaning something in the body that think that makes our body think that it's exercising, even if it isn't, at least at the muscle level. And so what we've done in the lab, and this is really kind of interesting, is we took um, muscle stem cells. So we got little pieces of muscle, like I told you about when I was on my sabbatic, and we isolate the stem cells from them. 
And then instead of actually having the person exercise, we exercise in quotes, the stem cells. So we put the stem cells on a special kind of bioreactor that simulates what the cell would quote, see in an exercising muscle, which it sees strain. And we actually could show that we could enrich the cargo of the extracellular vesicles or exosomes that came from those exercised stem cells, so exercising outside the body, collect that, those, those EVs, those extracellular vesicles, put them back into, in this case, a mouse to show that we could actually preserve muscle mass after an injury or in an aging mouse which is really crazy because what's fun about this whole um, concept is this would mean that maybe what we could do is take a small biopsy of your Hannah, your muscle. Let's just say we know, Hannah, you're an elite athlete and you're, you know, a speed skater, right? And, but you have to have some surgery, which means you're going to be on bed rest, but my goodness, you've got the Olympic event coming in six weeks. How can we prevent your body from losing muscle mass and fitness over time, could we actually just grow your stem cells in a Petri dish, exercise your stem cells, collect the things they secrete, which are these EVs or extracellular vesicles, and give them back to you and maybe prevent that muscle loss. Same thing with aging. Could we do that periodically over our lives where we're sort of giving ourselves a little boost or kind of a refurbishing, I guess, of our muscle mass as if we are, you know, 10 years younger, or perhaps we are a more athletic individual than we actually are. Um, and this is not to say that we know every, that these things mimic all the benefits of exercise, right? We know that there's a, n- a number of benefits of exercise, like your cardiovascular health. This is purely just looking at it from the muscle, the skeletal muscle itself. And we've been successful. And that's what's really fun about this research is we don't know exactly where it's going to take us, but I have a feeling it's going to be huge. That's incredible. Of course, it sounds like science fiction at this point in time, but that's like the most, that's what the research is all about is doing those cutting edge things that you can't even imagine in the moment. (laughs) And I could see a, I could see multiple applications like you're talking about. Like I'm imagining any person who has to be on bed rest for any reason for a long-term amount of time or like cancer patients, for example, um, older adults, like you're saying, injuries. It's really, really fascinating all the connections you could make. Yeah. And one of the things, especially as people get into advanced age, that mu- loss of muscle is associated with what we call frailty. And frailty is a complex of a number of different things. But among the chief things that are characterizing frailty is muscle loss. So and then you think about, okay, when you're frail, you know, you have less resilience. If you were, to, you're more likely to fall perhaps, or be injured by something that a younger person would easily recover from, but this causes a pretty significant injury. And then you have all the different things that come along with, you know, if you should have to have surgery or have to have prolonged bed rest. So if we could prevent frailty by actually treating or actually preventing sarcopenia, that would make a huge difference in the life of many, many older individuals. Um, and, you know, maybe we could prevent some of those other consequences of frailty, such as more frequent falls and more severe injuries when you do fall. Yeah. Yeah. That's the goal. So 
Something that I'm thinking about is that I really want to emphasize too, is that when I think of therapies like this, I immediately go to like bioengineering or tissue engineering disciplines. But I want to emphasize that, again, you're a veterinarian by training. (laughs) So can you tell us about that connection and maybe how EV therapy is being done in, you know, preliminary studies in animals? Yes. So um, the, you know, for, for one, um, what's really interesting about these types of scientific fields is they're agnostic to species. So people often will ask me, well, you're a veterinarian, but now you're doing human research. <laughs> um, and I'm like, well, it's never been just, this is like, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, a mouse, a dog, a horse, or a human, your um, stem cells work the same way. And these therapies are potentially something that could benefit you, um, benefit your health. And so this is what we call translational medicine or or comparative medicine, which is essentially looking across different species and actually taking the benefits that we know work in humans and applying them in veterinary medicine, taking the benefits that we know work in veterinary medicine, applying in humans. So I often think that it's a funny question when people like, so you're working in human medicine now? And I'm like, but I've always been, I'm working in in like biologic (laughs) organisms. And so I don't know how to describe, like there's no real dividing line between humans and, and especially companion animals. And we've talked about this in the past on the podcast. Um, One of the things that I think is really interesting about EV therapy and regenerative medicine or extracellular vesicles is that it's extremely new. So we're talking about stuff that is so cutting edge that there are many people in the stem cell research world that have no idea even what extracellular vesicles are at this point. So extraordinarily young science. However, there are a few um, studies out there where in companion animals, specifically there have been a couple in a couple studies in horses and a couple studies in dogs, where these extracellular vesicles from stem cells have been used to treat specific diseases. Um, right now, the studies are so small and they're really not very well um, controlled or well designed. It's a little reminiscent of the old wild west of stem cells. It's like, oh my goody, you know, like these these extracellular vesicles are going to be the next, you know, fairy dust, magic, whatever wand. And so we'll just put them in everything. And so that's what I really want to um, avoid, you know, kind of this the mistakes that we made with stem cells or that the field made with stem cells you know, 20 years ago, we really want to think about how are we going to design studies to really get at efficacy. So how effective are these? What's the right dose? What's the right disease? And do we use EVs from other animals donating to the same species um, or the same individual that donates back to themselves? Or could we even use something across species? Could we take, you know, a mouse uh, EV and use that in a horse or a mouse EV and use it in people. And there's some very, very early evidence to show that that's possible, maybe. So I don't know. There's still more answers, more questions than there are answers. But um, again, it's such a young field that I don't think we really know. What we do know based on those little studies that I mentioned is that they seem to be safe and that um, the EVs are able to be delivered um, safely in you know the area that they're using for whatever the disease is. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any bad effects of them. And that's about all we can say so far. 
but this is kind of the thing that we want. We don't want to repeat history and, you know, kind of come at this with, you know, guns blazing. We want to be very intentional about how we study these so that we can get them to be more used in a more effective way than I think stem cells were. You're leading me perfectly to the next question I had, which is, you know, I think you might have just answered it. How does EV therapy stack up against other regenerative medicine therapies? I'm assuming it's very new and we don't know a lot about it. (laughs) We don't know a lot about it, but we've also learned from the path we've been on with stem cells. And one of the challenges that we've had with stem cells, and we mentioned this briefly earlier in our conversation, is that it's really hard to get a consistent number of stem cells and each of those stem cells to have a consistent effect from you know person to person or dog to dog or human to human you know a lot of what we have is something called heterogeneity which means that it's just you know there's there everybody's different and Hannah's your stem cells are going to behave a little bit differently than mine um and cells are that way because they're living. They're living things. Um, when we inject them into people, they are alive. And so there have been some concerns, especially when you use stem cells from a donor into a recipient. Could those stem cells do something bad? I mean, they're still they're living. And so there have been very rare uh, reports of them forming a tumor, for example. So there's some safety issues with cells. The other thing about cells is that they're relatively big compared to these extracellular vesicles. And the cells themselves, especially these MSCs that we talk about, are a little sticky because they kind of are part of the connective tissue of our bodies. And so when we separate them away from their tissue and grow them in a Petri dish, they actually secrete kind of a slimy substance, which is what they're supposed to do. But that causes them sometimes to clump together. And sometimes, especially if they're given uh, intravenously, they can cause a stroke. Um, and so that's obviously extremely serious uh, consequence and side effect of stem cell therapy. Very rare, but enough that it's a concern. EVs, the advantage to EVs is number one, they're not alive. They themselves are just a particle that comes from the cell. They're tiny things on the nanoscale, so about the size of a virus or even smaller. They can cross the blood-brain barrier where cells sometimes have a hard time doing that. And that can be good, but there are safety issues surrounding that, right? We have to make sure that we're not trying to grow cartilage in the brain or something crazy like that. Um, But the other thing that's really um, an advantage to these EVs is that, as we showed in our little experiment with exercising stem cells outside the body, you can actually create conditions that the stem cells are being cultured in that prime those uh, EVs to have content that you want. So in the case of the study I told you, we were actually subjecting them to exercise. So we're making them think, hey, I'm in an exercising muscle. I'm going to make good beneficial things that are associated with exercise because that's my job as a repair cell. So I'm going to help repair muscle. You know, we get little tears in our muscle when we exercise hard and that's when the stem cells are happily, you know, secreting all their good things that make our muscles get bigger because because they're being repaired and they're getting more and more muscle fiber in them. So similarly, there are a lot of ways in which we can change how those cells are, you know, essentially cultured or how we collect the EVs from them in order to enrich the cargo to do what we want. And you can't do that with cells. So those are some major advantages. And the final advantage is that 
one of the ways in which we can get something that's a biologic product to market is we have to be sure that we can make it consistent every single time that we know exactly what the dose is that we're giving. And you can't do that with cells either. As I said, there's too many inconsistencies from one donor to another donor, one individual to another individual. But with EVs, we could test that. We can actually make sure that they have the content that we want and that we're giving exactly the same number to every individual. So as a result of all of those really important and complex pieces of you know information I gave you, I think it's my prediction that EVs will be easier to bring to be market in terms of becoming a meaningful healthcare product or a meaningful healthcare therapeutic than stem cells were. So that is one reason why I'm really interested in these to try to figure out, okay, if we can very deliberately figure out what's the right dose, what are the right parent cell conditions so we get the cargo that we want, and can we scale that up in a way that we can consistently bring something that I give to one person is exactly the same as I give to another person, um, then I think we've got a shot at making this a wide, a more widespread and widely used product and, you know, with, that will help a lot more people than stem cells have. Hmm. I see the vision. I see <laughs> it very clearly after that conversation, for sure. So we we're at the end of our regenerative medicine talk. And so that leaves me to the last question that I ask everyone who comes on the show. And it's interesting because we had you on last season. So we got your perspective for last season's question. But now I want to know what makes you most excited for the future of aging research from your lab, your perspective, what you study? I love this question. Um, I think that the list of things I'm not excited about would be shorter than the list of things that I am excited about. But you asked me what's the most exciting. So I'll try to answer that. I, I feel like the most exciting part of it is that we now have such a deeper understanding of the mechanisms that drive aging. And even in the last 10 years, the ability for us to show that if we target any of those very fundamental mechanisms that we can reverse aging changes or we can slow aging changes. I talked about stem cell exhaustion, which is one of the hallmarks of aging, but there are people doing extremely very impactful work in all the hallmarks of aging, and that is happening simultaneously. So to me, the most exciting thing about aging research from my perspective is that there are so many different ways we can target this, and we're being successful um, you know, in the laboratory, that something is going to shake out that's really going to make a difference in the next 10 years. Um, and I believe that, you know, EVs are one of those things that are on the cusp of, you know, kind of becoming that next big thing. There are other aspects of, you know, people's work that I also find extremely exciting and kind of near horizon. So to me, I feel like I want to be, you know, in my lifetime, I want to squarely be in that kind of horizon of now all of a sudden we have longevity therapeutics that are working in people and are safe and effective and we're really extending health span. Nicole, always a pleasure to talk to you. I'm always enlightened by our conversations. Thank you so much for your time and for telling us a little bit about what you do. It's a pleasure. I really enjoy talking about this, as you can tell. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. 
Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.